Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Create Your Life series, where we help you maximize your potential and results in the area of personal development, entrepreneurship, and travel. And I'm your host, Kevin Y. Brown. Create your life. Create ta propre vie. Create your life. Create your life. Create la tua vita. Create your life. On skip your life. You better create your life. <laughs> create your life. Create la vie. Create your life. Create your life. Create Your Life family, thanks for tuning in to this episode. Before we get started, I wanted to share some exciting information from our sponsor. We only pick people and companies that we think are awesome to bring onto the show, so please support them. As a podcaster, I've spent hours and hours editing, doing show graphics, and much more, and I finally got fed up with losing all of my free time to post-production activities. So I decided to do something about it. And if you are a fellow busy podcaster who would like to just record and have someone else do the dirty work of graphic creation, tagging and uploading your show to your server and in-depth SEO generating show notes, go to podcastlaundry.com or call 347-871-8273 to schedule your consultation. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. Beautiful people, this is the Create Your Life series. I'm your host, Kevin Y. Brown, and today we have an amazing guest. This gentleman is world-renowned, is a professor at the institution where I went to school at. Definitely dynamic in every sense of the word. I want to read a bit of his bio, but I know he's definitely going to warm us up and teach us a lot in this session. I'm super excited. He spent his entire career interviewing peak performers all over the world and gleaning the best ideas, strategies, and success principles from their words. He's heard the same things enough times to know that all people who succeed tend to follow the same path and that all people who have not succeeded yet tend to fall into the same pit over and over again. He's a best-selling author of five books, writing partner, and master trainer for the prestigious Napoleon Hill Foundation and is on the faculty at Clark Atlanta University School of Business Administration. He is a recipient of the Dale Carnegie Personal Achievement Award, and he received his BA degree from the University of Oklahoma and MA and doctor from Northwestern University, where he studied wealth and poverty in underdeveloped countries. In 2005, the National Black NBA Association presented him with the 2005 N. H. Naylor Fitzhugh Award, recognizing him as one of the top professors in the nation. And he is the author of my actual favorite book, which is called What Makes the Great Great. So I'm talking about none other than Mr. Dennis Kimbrell. Dr. Kimbrell, please say hello to the Create Your Life family. Create your life family. Great to be with you, man. Have any, you could be interviewing anybody, but you selected me. I'm honored. I'm proud. I'm so hyped. I met you after I graduated, but okay. you are the reason why I feel like I can never have an ego. Wow. And I'm going to tell you this. The reason why is because when I met you, I didn't even know who you were. I was told to come and speak to you because, you know, entrepreneurship has always been my thing and always been an interest area of mine. So I come to you and we're talking and you just welcome me. Hey, my brother, come on in. Come chat with me, et cetera, et cetera. And so we sit down for about an hour and we just talk. You ask me about my (laughs) plans and things like that. And then I come back and see you the next day. And then I'll say, you know what? Let me stop. Let me research this guy. And you were so chill and so welcoming that I was like, this guy is on this higher echelon level, but you would never know. Mm. And he treats me like a person and is always welcoming. I was like, you know what? Because he's humble, I'll always have to be humble because I want to be in the same light as Dr. Dennis (laughs) Kimbrough. And that's the reason why if I ever think about getting an ego or anything like that, I check it out at the door because of you. And so I want to say thank you. (laughs) Well, I have no choice. A wife and three daughters, man, they keep you in check, bro. (laughs) No ego here, bro. I could only imagine. So, Dr. Kimbrough, can you describe growing up in New Jersey and what actually got you interested in black wealth? Wow, great question. Well, it goes back to my parents. And you talk about humble and gratitude. That's the foundation for everything that I've done. You look at where I come from. My grandfather on my fraternal side, he was a butler. And my grandmother, she was a maid. They worked for a wealthy white family in North Carolina. My mother was a nanny. My mother had a seventh grade education. My parents were sticklers education, particularly my father. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I shared this with you, Kevin, but we couldn't watch TV. Me and my older brother, you know, on a school night, we had to do our homework before we could go out and play. And there was certainly no TV on school nights, except for one exception. This was a television show. It only came on for 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And my father would sit me and my brother down and we had to watch the show. And after we watched it, he quizzed us. Mm-hmm. What was the name of that show? What was the title of the show? It was Biography. And I'll never forget the host was Mike Wallace and Kevin. There were no black profiles. Well, I take that back. Maybe Jackie Robinson, maybe Mohandas K. Gandhi, speaking of profiles of color. But I was sitting there watching profile of Amelia Earhart or Eleanor Roosevelt or FDR or whatever. And then after the show was over, my father would ask, okay, so what did they do? What made them special? What made them different? Do you think you could do that? And that's something that just stayed with me. It was a part of my consciousness all throughout my school years. When I was an undergrad, my fraternity brothers called me the professor because I always had a book on my arm. I was always inquisitive. I always wanted to know. And that's just something that it's like when Moses encounters the burning bush and he's looking at the bush burning. It's not being consumed Mm -hmm. and it's going through his mind wow, this bush isn't burning, but it's not being consumed. There must be more out of life. There must be something more. Well, that was the same thing with me. I wanted to know more. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know, hey, man, do I have a destiny? What am I going to do with my time on earth and blah, blah, blah? Well, arguably some of the best advice I was ever given when I was at in grad school at Northwestern, Mm -hmm. I had a committee member who said to me, he says, Dennis, when you're writing your dissertation, Don't write it in a field that only two people in the Western world are going to read it. Mm. He said, view your dissertation as your first publication, as your first book. So I took his advice to heart. And my dissertation was on wealth and poverty among underdeveloped countries and nation states. A few years later, I'm granted the doctorate. And I turned to my wife. Now that I am, quote, unquote, Dr. Kimbrough, I turned to her and I said, (laughs) I said, Pat, I know my first book. She says, what is it? I said, before I tell you, I don't want to study poverty and I don't want to study nation states. She said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to study wealth and I want to study African-Americans, individuals, Mm. who succeeds and why. And that's all I've done for the past 25, 26, 27 years. Wow. Different variations of that. Mm-hmm. But I'm always trying to discover what are the inner marks, what are the traits, what are the qualities, what are the attributes that separates those who succeed from those who don't, those who, you know, have acquired wealth and those who are only a day's march from poverty. And lo and behold, I really didn't write a book. The book that you mentioned, What Makes the Great Great, that mm-hmm. was going to be my first book until the Napoleon Hill Foundation caught wind of me and they asked me to finish Napoleon Hill's book. But Kevin, I never wanted to write a book. What I want to do is start a movement. I've been blessed after, like I said, 25 certain years, Thinking We're Rich of Black Choice for more than 25 years has been the number one business book in black America. But I'm honored. But I'm more honored about the movement that I created. And that's what I was going to say, is that you actually did create a movement. Because I'm going to be honest, after I had the opportunity to read What Makes the Great Great, a part of the reason why the Create Your Life series even exists is because I have become very intentional about understanding the how and what makes people successful. And even in the description of Create Your Life series, it says, we study and we figure out what makes the great great. So that's the homage to you. But for you, you've interviewed over thousands of black millionaires. <laughs> what would you say have been some of the most impactful interviews that you've had? Yeah, personally? I've had many, many great interviews, particularly at the millionaire level for my fifth book. And then just men and women who wanted to make a difference and wanted to use their life in service to others. And I can go on wanting to use your life of service looking at Osceola McCarty. Mm-hmm. The washerwoman from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, I spent the better part of a day with her. When uh, Maynard Jackson was mayor of Atlanta, he liked the project and he wanted to be a part of it. And he said to me, when I didn't have it, when I couldn't find a dime with the roadmap, he said, listen, don't interview me. I said, no, Mr. Mayor, I want him. He said, no, don't interview me. He said, shadow me through City Hall for a week. Can you imagine shadowing Maynard Jackson for one week through City Hall? Wow. And just looking how he goes about his life. And that's what I did. When you look at the millionaire levels, probably, yeah, I had about 60 one-on-one interviews with black millionaires. But Kevin, I had six focus groups 
And if you weren't African-American and you weren't seven figures, you weren't a millionaire, you didn't get in the focus group. Mm. And I know over a seven year period, you know, I rubbed shoulders, like you said, with about a thousand of these individuals. But seeing how they approach each other in a focus group really opened my eyes. Mm. You know, you talked about no ego and whatever. Yeah, they got the designer fashions and yeah, they got four automobiles and yeah, they got the latest Mercedes and yeah, they got this and that. But it's not about beating on their chest and it's not about bling bling and it's not about looking at me because they know that the underlying theme of this is like a relay race. A relay race isn't one or lost and how fast the runners can advance. A relay race is one or lost on how capable one runner passes the baton from one to the next. And their relay race is, yeah, creating wealth, but using their life as a model to almost show black America a way out. And Kevin, we're at a crucial time period. I mean, if you read the book, you know all the data. 27% of African-Americans spend more on a weekly basis than what they bring in. More than 30% don't even have a savings plan. More than 40%, Kevin, more than 40%. Don't even use a bank or financial institution for their business affairs. Right. I mean, the number one bank of black America is Walmart. The number two bank of black America is the post office. I mean, that's well and good. That helps you get through another day or another week or whatever. But if you have a child and you hold out any hopes of that child going to college, you can't even get financial aid because you haven't even established credit. So it all goes back to wealth. And it always goes back. I open up that book with that quote from Black America's most prolific scholar, my icon, W.B. Du Bois, who said in that book, there it is. First 20 pages of The Wealth Choice, the boy says, the man or woman who won't control his or her finances won't control anything else. Right. And then number two, now he said this in 1897, more than 100 years ago. And then number two, he said nothing positive will ever occur in a community that fails to circulate its dollars. Man, I walk up and down the promenade here at CAU, and I want to give copies of that quote to every student. I said, look at you. You got the latest bling bling on that. You're a college student. Come on. No, no one does that. But that's something that we have got to discuss, and that's something. Again, he wrote it 100 years ago. Why in the world are we still dealing with it today? So that's a long, circuitous way to go about answering your question, but I hope I covered it from all angles. Okay. Would you say that there was one interview that was just your absolute favorite? Yes, I would certainly go back to Osceola McCarty, the little black washerwoman. Here is a woman who worked more than 80 years, saved every dime that came by her hand. And she was a washerwoman. She took in the wash of everybody in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And everybody laughed at her. And Kevin, going back to my students, you know, I tell them, I said, all the people that we admire, all the people that we revere, mm -hmm. all the people that we emulate and we look up to, at one point in their life, they were criticized. They were right. laughed. They were scoffed. But the only thing that got them over the hump, they had a burning desire. Mm -hmm. And a burning desire, Kevin, is unlike any other desire. You may have a desire, I'm going to eat at this restaurant today, or I saw an outfit at Brooks Brothers that I want to buy. My wife has a desire. She wants to paint a few rooms. Well, that's a desire. But a burning desire is an inner candle. It's an inner flame that can never be extinguished. And though the worst may go before you, mm -hmm. folks will criticize you. They will laugh at you. They will tell you no. They will tell you you can never do that. You will use their criticism. You will use their laughter. You will use their ridicule to propel you forward. Mm -hmm. And that's what she did. She took on the wash. She charged a nickel for a boy's shirt, a dime for a little girl's dress, maybe a quarter for sheets and whatever. And Kevin, every week she made daily deposits at the bank. Well, after 80 years of doing this, she gets a phone call from a banker and a banker says, Miss Picardi, do you have any idea how much money you saved over 80 years? And she said, no, tell me. And he said, more than a quarter of a million dollars. Wow. And there's a pause on the phone. and The banker could tell that she didn't even know the net worth of a quarter of a million dollars. And he says, Mr. McCarty, I'll tell you what, come down to the bank. Let's talk about this in, in detail. So a week later, she goes down to the bank. She talks to that vice president, that banker. Mm -hmm. They're in his office and he has 10 dimes on his desk. And he says, Miss McCarty, when I point to one of these dimes, that's going to represent 10 percent of your earnings. You tell me what you want done with your money. He points to the first time. She says, I want you to give that to my church. Give it to my pastor. When I'm gone, I don't want them to want for anything. Points to the next two dimes. She says, well, I never had any children. I've never been married, but I have two nephews. I don't want them to rake and scrape. I want them to be taken care of. Give them 20% of my earnings. And then he says, well, what do you want with the last seven dimes? She said, I know exactly what I want you to do. I want you to send this money to the development office at the University of Southern Mississippi. He said, you got to be kidding. He says, no, 
A week later, that money goes to the University of Southern Mississippi with a handwritten letter from Osceola McCarty that says, I want you to start a scholarship in my honor for worthy and deserving black college students who still possess the ability to dream. Just a, a powerful testament of living her life in service to others. Wow. You know, making a difference. Now, yeah, I had great interviews mm -hmm. with so many millionaires. As you know, there are seven black billionaires in the United States, mm -hmm. but you may not realize that if it weren't for the 07, 08 recession, you had close to 10 other individuals who mm -hmm. were right on the cusp of crossing the threshold of billionaireship, but couldn't do it because of the recession. And one of them was Victor McFarland. Mm -hmm. Victor McFarland, born and raised in Middletown, Ohio, which you may or may not know is a blue collar town in Ohio, raised by a single parent, had an older sister, one bedroom apartment in Middletown, Ohio, and that one bedroom was for the mother. And in the foyer area of that apartment, there was a couch. And Victor McFarland told me that the first 12 years of his life, that couch opened up to a bed and he and his older sister slept on that bed. And when he shared that with me, I said, damn, Victor, here you are, net worth more than 600 million. It had to be rough. That had to be tough. Kevin, he cut me off at the knees. He said, don't feel sorry for me. He said, uh-uh, no, no empathy. He said, when I look back at it now, it was sleeping on that couch for the first 12 years of my life that I made a conscious decision that poverty would have no place in my life. Mm. When he said that to me, I said, oh my God. And I looked at it and I'm looking at, you know, I had six focus groups. I had one focus group in Raleigh dorm area. There were 45 black millionaires there. I had three in Atlanta, one in Atlanta. There were about 40 black millionaires for Kevin. I had a huge focus group in Washington, D.C., there were about 110 black millionaires in that room. Bob Johnson, the founder of BET, was mm -hmm. in there. Carla Harris, most powerful black woman on Wall Street, was in that room. Mm -hmm. Michael and Steve Roberts, the Roberts brothers out of St. Louis, they were in the room. So just watching them interact with their peer group, and there I am taking notes with both hands, asking a few <laughs> questions, and trying to grasp how these individuals view wealth. And it's all mindset. And I put it in the book. I call it the calculus of compensation, how the have views a particular variable and how the have not views it. And all it is, is different a mindset. So, Dr. Kimbrough, in The Wealth Choice, you say that people will make you rich and will make you poor depending on your level of service. Yep. Can you expound on that a little bit? Because we just talked about living your life in service to others. Oh, yeah. Service is the price you pay for the space that you occupy. Mm -hmm. And all entrepreneurs do is solve problems. You solve a small problem, you make a little money, you solve a big problem, and you get bank like Hank. So the critical question is, if I gave you a million dollars, if I gave you a billion dollars, what problem would you solve? And I tell it particularly to your generation, the generation X, Y, the millennials, blah, 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 they get on the cell phone. And I tell my students, be conscious of that. Because you don't want to come across as being more interested in somebody else's life than your own. Mm -hmm. Put the cell phone down for a few minutes and think. And when you do log on, be conscious of the fact that the moment that you log on, there are four billion other people online with you. You can use the four billion people to share your product, to share your service, tell everybody the direction of your life. Or you can use that four billion platform to gossip. It is completely and totally up to you, but be very careful. When Zuckerberg came up with Facebook, when Chad Hurley came up with YouTube, when Reed Hoffman came up with LinkedIn, when Kevin Sinstrom came up with Instagram, when Elon Musk came up with PayPal, when Jack Dorsey came up with Twitter, they came up with these social media platforms, not for you to gossip, but for you to make a difference and change the world. So be very conscious of that. And it all goes back to service. Service is the price you pay for the space that you occupy and anybody can serve. Earlier, you talked about burning desire. And when you're talking about these guys who founded these companies that are these huge outlets for us to change the world, it's that burning desire. But for you, you had a burning desire because at one point you had two cars repossessed. You were five yep. months behind on your mortgage. Yep. How did you push past that point mentally because you were also a husband and a father? Oh, and yeah. Tell us about the story with your wife going out to dinner 
Oh, yeah. I still, like I said, you come to my office, sit in my study, I'll hand you my Bible, open up my Bible to the first page, and that was that fortune. Mm-hmm. You will be surrounded by wealth and riches. But again, we wouldn't even have this conversation. Everybody's got, no one's Jonathan Living Siegel. No one makes it alone. Mm-hmm. Well, sooner or later, you're going to stand on somebody else's shoulders. And I stood mm-hmm. on the shoulders of my wife because, as I shared in the story, there were times that I quit, she didn't, times she quit, I didn't, but we never quit together. You mentioned ego. I'm not the same person I was when I started. When I told my wife I was writing this book, she said, how long will it take you? I said, Pat, won't take me a day longer than 18 months, a year and a half, seven years later. So what happened in the other five and a half years, anything and everything that could happen, Mm -hmm. but it was a learning experience. Again, you go back to the burning bush and it's all a metaphor sooner or later. I mean, Kevin, you encountered the burning bush. Mm -hmm. Why do I say that? Because we're having this conversation. I know in your life, you want more. You know, you have something inside of your spirit, inside of you that says, I got a destiny and I know there's more to life. And maybe starting this, creating this life series is just the starting point of it. You encountered the burning bush. Now, whether it takes you the three days it took from the crucifixion to the resurrection or whether it takes you the 40 years in the wilderness is completely and totally up to you. Right. So, you know, and what it is, is your belief in yourself. Mm-hmm. It is your belief in yourself. And everybody goes through it. I mean, you go look at Bill Gates. It took Bill Gates seven years to go from dropping out of Harvard to coming up with the Windows platform. Almost seven years to the day. You look at Steve Jobs. He had so many years like that. I remember I shared the story with my students when Steve Jobs, he gets his designers together and he gets his engineers and they're in his office and he points at his desktop computer. And he tells his system engineers and his product, blah, blah, blah. And he says, get rid of that keyboard. I'm sick and tired of looking at a keyboard. And they tell him, Steve, we can't get rid of the keyboard. And what was Job's response? He said, look, damn it, quit trying to steal my dream. I don't like when people try to steal my dream. Hmm. He said, I said, get rid of the keyboard, get rid of it. So six to nine months later, they come back and they hand him what is really the iPad. Right. And there was no such thing as iPad at the time. And Jobs really didn't know. No one knew what they had in this hand. Steve, you told us to get rid of the uh, keyboard. So we did. Go ahead, hit that. And then you can see that uh, QWERTY keyboard comes at the bottom of the screen, blah, blah, blah. And Steve Jobs holds it in his hand. He looks at it and he says to everybody in the room, this is great. But if we could only make a phone call with this. And it sent them back to square one. And that's how they came up with the iPhone two years later. That prototype that he had in his hand says, hey, we can have a useful product with this. Let's call it the iPad. So everybody goes through it, but it is completely contingent on you. Q plus Q plus MA equals C. The quality of your service plus the quantity of your service plus the mental attitude in which it is rendered always equals compensation. You talk about attitude a lot and what makes the great great. Specifically in the beginning, and also in the book, one of your quotes is that I love is you said, talent helps, but greatness has more in common with nerve than it ever will with ability. Yep. (laughs) Love that quote, man. (laughs) I'm telling you, like, I'm a real student. You said something earlier where you talked about your wife giving up, and then you didn't give up, and then you giving up, and then she didn't give up, but you guys never gave up on each other. (laughs) Never gave up together. How many times? Did I pray on her shoulder? How many times did I cry on her lap? And I said, Pat, when is it going to end? She said, just keep going. You're almost finished, blah, blah, blah. And the turning point was that Easter Sunday when I got that phone call from Harvey McKay. It was game over after that. I said, the uh, seven-year-old deal is over with. But here's the good news, Kevin. Whether it takes you seven minutes or seven years, whether it takes you three days or 40 years, If you do it right, you never have to do it again in life. I would ask you, do you have any advice on how to picking the right partner? Yeah, it's right there, man. Don't find somebody that you can spend your life with. Find somebody who you can't live without. That is the critical difference because that's one of the three great questions of life. Who are you going to spend your time with? What are you going to believe? And what are you going to do? Find your area of excellence. Find your passion. Who are you going to believe? Believe in yourself. If you're going to bet the ranch, you're going to bet the farm, bet it on yourself. That's right. I mean, Kevin, no one in the universe is perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line, we are all perfect. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, we were all created in his image. We got to get down on our knees and say, thank God I'm creating his image. He's not creating a mind. Well, what is his image? His image is perfection. Right. Everything that you need, the biggest mistake that you will ever make in life is to think that something outside of you will bring you happiness. Mm -hmm. You're already happy. You created the only thing your creator wants. He wants you to be happy. You're already happy. And then last but not, who are you going to spend your time with? And that's it. And a lot of folks can't make those three decisions, man. If I stood here, I am in Atlanta. I'm in my office here at Clark Atlanta. If I stood on the one of the busiest intersections in Atlanta, Peachtree Far Road or Piedmont or whatever, and I interviewed the first 100 people that crossed my path, Kevin, I doubt if I could find three people who could answer those questions. That's probably how you need to spend your life. That actually brings up a level of curiosity for me. We're talking about interviewing people and... I guess someone who interviews a lot of successful and wealthy people, how have you made sure to be a peer of your subjects versus just being the guy who interviews them? Oh, that's a good question. That's that's a good question. How do I perceive myself? If I jumped out of my skin and I looked at Dennis Kimbrough, my perception is to be someone who chronicled the deliberations, to be someone to prove that this actually took place for future generations. I mean, what is Steven Spielberg's claim to fame? That three times he won the Academy Awards, Director of the Year, Picture of the Year, that he created the summer blockbuster movies with the movies Jaws. Is that his claim to fame? No. Steven Spielberg's claim to fame is that he has the largest video archive of Jewish Holocaust survivors. That is his claim to fame. He proved what occurred back in the 1930s and 1940s. What is W.E.B. Du Bois' claim to fame? That he's Black American, America's most prolific scholar? No. He proved with his souls of black folk when he taught at Atlanta University and then in the summer he would go down to Albany, Georgia and interview sharecroppers in the field. This is living proof that this occurred in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. And then here this book is changing life for countless others. Well, that's what I wanted to do. I'm proving that, yeah, I know you got 34 million African-Americans and Kevin. Of the 34 million African-Americans, you got less than 400,000 black school teachers. You got less than 125,000 black engineers. Mm -hmm. You have less than 75,000 black doctors. You have less than 50,000 black dentists. You have less than 200,000 black CPAs. In this day and age, in 2018, are you kidding me? Hmm. Brother, are you on crack? If you're not, well, damn it, you need to be out of 34 million African-Americans Come on, man. We got to ramp this up. We got to change this narrative. We got to change this dynamic. And hopefully that in the process of transformations, my books will be useful. This is how they did it. This is how folks went from nothing a day's march ahead of poverty to creating the life that they wanted over and over again. Wow. Create Your Life family. I hope that you are really enjoying this episode. I wanted to give a quick shout out to our sponsors and let you know that our sponsors are giving special offers just for you. If you are a fellow busy podcaster who just wants to record and spend the rest of your time doing what you love, like working out at the gym with family and friends or traveling, use code CYLS for a discount on services when you go to podcastlaundry.com or call 347-871-8273 to schedule your consultation. That's podcastlaundry.com or 347-871-8273. And without further ado, let's get back to the show. So, Doc, for you, what have you done consistently to keep you evolving? Probably becoming a sponge for information, reading, studying, mm -hmm. growing. I was in Detroit two weeks ago with Chrysler, and during the Q&A, I shared the biblical quote, Jesus, where have you been? You've been missing for three days. You had people upset. We were concerned. You need to tell people where you're going. And his retort was, wait a minute. I had you concerned. You were looking for me. He said, you should have known where I've been. I've been about my father's business. And then I shared, well, what's the deeper meaning of that? What is your father's business? Your father's business is growth. Your father's business is development. Your father's business is taking in the information. Your father's business is being better today than you were yesterday. Just like the sign that I have in my classroom. If you don't read, if you don't study, if you don't grow, if you don't develop, if you don't go to the conferences, if you don't go to the seminar, if you don't take good notes, somebody else out in the universe will. And the day that you meet that other person, you lose. So that's something that has always stuck with me. And you come to my study at my home 
And the first thing you'll notice, books upon books, just rows, rows of books. When I was a junior in college and undergrad, I knew what I wanted to do, and I stopped selling my books. I said, no, and I'm going to keep my books. But when you sit down at my computer, and I have about 20 or 30 books right there nearest and dearest to me, well, those are the books that probably had a profound impact on my life. And what you'll see, the readings of Martin Luther King. And even today, I dip back and I reread for the millionth time letter from a Birmingham jail. Kevin, Martin Luther King was 34 years old when he wrote that. He wrote it on scraps of paper. He wrote it on scraps of the newspaper. He wrote it on toilet paper. And to hear him quote the great philosophers, man, yeah, it has a profound impact. And then you'll see the autobiography of a fugitive slave, the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. I'm rereading that for how many times have I read that, man? You can learn, you can grow, you can develop from anybody. Again, we opened up this interview. I told you my mother, if you took my mother Mm -hmm. and took my mother-in-law and put their primary education together, you still wouldn't get a high school diploma. Wow. My mother had a seventh grade education. Here I have a doctorate from one of the top schools in the world, but my mother corrected my English. In other words... You can learn and you can grow from anybody. So, Doc, you've created this immense amount of success and you've interviewed all of these successful people. But for you personally, how did you deal with negative feedback as you were rising? What did you think when you first saw it? Was it public, negative? Mm -hmm. And were you prepared for it? No, you never prepared for it. Mm-hmm. You just a natural inclination is to think everybody's going to support your dream. Mm-hmm. You know, you go, you know, I just came up with a great idea, man. We can do ABC, XYZ, one, two, three, and we can go ahead and change. And then someone said, oh, I'm not feeling it. Nah, I got, come on, man. If that was so great, somebody else would be doing it by now, blah, blah, blah. So you're never really prepared for it. But when it occurs, again, you go back to Mother Teresa and the final analysis, Kevin, mm-hmm. I always give my students the four greatest prayers. And one of the four greatest prayers is the final analysis by Mother Teresa. People may tear down in a day what took you years to build, build anyway. People will laugh and scoff at you. Go ahead and dream anyway, because in the final analysis, it's mm-hmm. never between you and them. It's only between you and God. Love that. So where do you get great ideas from? I mean, that's your creator knocking on your subconscious asking you, do you want more out of life? Mm-hmm. You're asking for a vehicle. This is a vehicle. We speak to God through prayer. He speaks to us through intuition. So it's never between you and them. But no, you're never prepared for it. And man, I could tell you ghost stories that'll put you on your knees, man. Now you fast forward the videotape. And there's no need to go through that nonsense again. You don't harbor any ill ill feelings because the same people who laughed and blah, blah, blah come to my office all the time or buy boxes of books they want me to autograph and Mm. this, that. So the bottom line is just a learning experience for all. What has been the biggest personal challenge that you needed to overcome in order to be who you are today? A self-belief. You'll probably find that mostly. And again, I shared the story about Beyonce when when I had that presentation with Sony Columbia Records and they were telling me so many stories about Beyonce. I shared the story about Michael Jordan when I tried desperately to interview Jordan, but I couldn't do it. But Michael Jordan's personal attorney, he liked the project and he took me to lunch. I flew into Chicago, met him at Four Seasons Hotel right there on Michigan Avenue. We're seated in a corner. And he said to me, there is no one on this planet that knows more about Michael Jordan than I do. You can forget interviewing Jordan. I'm his attorney. I handle his money. And half the time, he doesn't return my phone calls. But you can ask me any question. And if I can help you, you can use the material. And bang. So we all go through that, that self-doubt. Mm-hmm. And I know you're sick and tired of me you know, with these biblical references, but they're so rich. When our creator said to Moses, I want you to tell Pharaoh to let the people go. And what was Moses' retort, Kevin? He said, wait a minute, you you want me? Man, come on, are you sure? I'm not, come on, man, 50 million people, man, why me? And he says, as a matter of fact, man, I can't even speak, I stutter. Mm. He says, well, I'll have Aaron speak on your behalf. And he said, man, you might need to look again and get somebody else. I don't know. And he kept trying, finding one excuse after other excuse. And what did the creator say to Moses? He said, Moses, how dare you doubt me? Well, it's the same thing in our life, Kevin. Yeah, I created you to do something great. How dare you doubt me? Why are you giving me all these excuses? Just go ahead and do it. 
this is something that I've always pondered. I feel like I intuitively know part of the answer, but I don't know mm-hmm. it, and I'd rather hear it from you. You Good. don't need to work at the university. You work there because you want to work there. Yeah. What drives that and why? Because I made a conscious decision. I knew when I was a junior in college that I wanted to be a college professor. I know you're familiar with the seven criteria of a correct vocation. Mm-hmm. Number one is self-chosen. I choose to do this. And I tell friends and blah, blah, blah here at CAU, it's not unlike any other university, whatever. 90% of the time, you can always tell a professor has class that day. Why? They're on campus. Mm-hmm. If you don't see that professor that day, you know they don't have class. Not so with me. Kevin, I'm in my office right now. I don't have class today. Look how I'm dressed. Tomorrow, I'll be in a suit. Wednesday, I'll be back in my office. And, you know, my daughter say to me, Dad, come on, man. You're the only professor I know, man. You go up there on a Friday, blah, blah, blah. No one goes up on Friday. I said, wait a minute. I chose to do this. This is my profession. Now, I don't come up here every Friday, but a lot of Fridays I come up here so that my Monday and Tuesday, the following week, I won't be inundated. But I chose to do this. And if you choose this vocation, if you choose this profession, 99.9% of the time, Kevin, you're going to be good at what you do. Right. Why? Because you've got a passion for it. And people will feel that passion. They will feel your spirit. They will feel that you are inspired. And Kevin, what the hell is inspired? It's in spirit. You're moving from the physical to the spiritual. You're doing it with a relish. You're doing it with a flourish. And when people see that in you, I don't care what job you're doing. Mm -hmm. I don't care what career, what vocation you're doing. You won't be there long. I tell my students all the time, here is the numeraire. Here is the gold standard for how well you are doing in your career. How many times does your phone ring with somebody on the other end trying to hire you away from your present employer? My phone rings all the time. How many times does your phone ring? Mm -hmm. I mean, folks calling. Over the summer, I got a phone call from Morehouse. Uh, Dr. Kimbrough, have you ever got a phone call? Man, Doc, we just started this over here. We want you in on the discussion. I know what it's about. Why do you stay at Clark Atlanta specifically? I got my own agenda. And top of that is two of my daughter's degrees are from here. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got three daughters. Two of them have master's degrees. One's got an MBA. One has an MSW in sociology. So, you know, I want to make sure that their degree is worth some. But I didn't want to be, for the most part, I don't want to mention names, but so many of our scholars, and this is something that we got to change about our race, man. If you're teaching at this institution, this first tier institution, you're viewed and perceived as blah, 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 whether you're teaching here. And I tell folks all the time, you come to my house, you go down to my study and you look on my walls. My degree says Northwestern. I mean, yeah, I teach at Clark Atlanta, but when I teach my kids, I don't teach CAU. I teach Northwestern, what I was taught. And you're going to eat the same thing that they ate because when you go out there into the workforce and your boss, your supervisor calls the first staff meeting and Kevin's seated around that table, somebody from Duke, somebody from Stanford, somebody from Georgia Tech, somebody from CAU. You know, when your supervisor looks at everybody, there can't be any drop off. So I want to ensure that what I'm teaching is relevant and what I'm teaching is useful and what I'm teaching my students is what they really need to know. Thank you for that. Now I have the whole picture. So I really am appreciative of that. Mm -hmm. For you, if you weren't doing what you're doing, both professionally and as an entrepreneur, what career or hobby would you be pursuing? And is there anything that you always (laughs) wanted to do? (laughs) That's a great question. As you may or may not know, every Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday, I go to the gym to lift my weight. What does my wife say? I don't care how many times you run to that gym. And I don't care how many weights you lift. You're never going to get a phone call from the New York Yankees to play shortstop. <laughs> so does that answer your question? What I would be doing if I had the reset button? <laughs> yep, we made the playoffs. And when we, it looks like we're going to play Oakland in that first round. And I don't care if I have class that day or not. When I come up here, I'm going to be booted and suited. If I have class that day, I'm going to take off my suit. And I'm going to put on all my Yankee paraphernalia because I got to coach that game, baby. <laughs> oh, yes. That's what I'm doing. Yep. 
I said, girl, why are you trying to steal my dream, man? Why all the hate, girl? <laughs> now, I just want to let you know you ain't going to be the next Derek Jeter. Didn't I tell you about folks trying to steal your dream? <laughs> I said, man, as long, I got it, as long as I got air in this body, I know I'm 67 years old, man. I can still get out there. How you going to play shortstop and you got both your knees replaced? I said, man. <laughs> well, there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> That's right, man. <laughs> You ain't never gonna play shortstop. You can keep running that gym all you want. <laughs> so that's what I would be doing. Okay. Yep. Last question before we jump into the dolphin tank. What's the one thing that if someone could come in to your company and help you with right now, what would that be? Wow. Now that's a great question. They could probably help me in terms of my research at the survey level, mm-hmm. at the response level. When I was in grad school, Again, going back to Northwestern, they are very behavioralistic. What do we mean by that? They said, don't tell me anything, don't write anything, don't show me anything until you get the data. And I look back at it now, I'm saying, man, that's a pain in the ass and this stuff. But I look at it now, and Kevin, that really separates me from the crowd because no matter what I've done, I always had the data. Right. I, I was never one of those writers, or whatever, to philosophize, okay, this is what I'm thinking at the time. No. Here's the data. I don't care the interviews. You can come to my house and I can show you the micro cassettes of all the folks that I interviewed, or I can show you the survey. You get the wealth choice. And here I ask these black millionaires 118 questions. I can show you all the data, how all the 100, because my daughter, my middle daughter's got an MBA. She ran all the numbers for me. So yeah, they could help me at the research level. Mm-hmm. And here's the exciting part. Again, you know, why am I here? Because that survey. Yeah, I created that survey, but it was my MBA class five years ago, my business communication MBA class. I brought the survey into them. I said, okay, you guys are the hotshot experts. Go over the survey. Make sure that it's reliable and valid. Tell me if, number one, am I asking the right questions? And number two, what am I overlooking? And they went up one side and down the other and gave me their best thinking. So I gave them their props in the book, too. So, yeah, they could help me at the research level. All right, my next question for you, Dr. Kimbrough, is can you swim? Yes. Not only can I swim, but I taught my three daughters how to swim, and I sent them to swim camp. So two of my daughters are real good swimmers. Okay. See, we're about to jump into the dolphin tank, so. Okay, better than the shark tank. Yeah, Mm -hmm. definitely. We're friendlier. So this is rapid-fire questions. First one, what are your goal-setting methods, and how do you make sure that you're growing each year? I use the same goal-setting methods of Napoleon Hill. Number one, what is it that you want? Decide what is it that you want. Number two, what are you going to give up for what do you want? Number three, what are you going to sacrifice? What is the plan that you're going to sacrifice for? Number four, write the plan down. Number five, commit the plan, read it in the morning. And number six, read it in the evening. That's the quick and dirty of it. Napoleon Hill, he's the first 30 pages of Think and Grow Rich. So there you are. Thank and you. that's what I do. I look at it every day. Before I go to bed, that'll be the last image that I see. Mm. Okay. Every day. Every day. What was holding you back from creating your best life? Self-doubt. We talked about that. Belief. Mm. Man, do you think I could get these interviews and blah, blah, blah? Until I came up with the epiphany, the revelation, go after the number one interview that you want. And at the time, number one interview for the wealth choice and what became Think and Grow Rich was John Johnson of Ebony Magazine. Because after I got him, people will say, well, who have you interviewed today? When I tell them John Johnson, well, come get me. Took me more than two years to get John Johnson. Took me more than two years to get Earl Graves. Took me more than two and a half years to get Ben Carson. But I got them all. And even the same thing with the wealth choice. I said, who are the biggest and baddest out there? And I said, let me go right after Steve Harvey. Let me go right after Tyler Perry. Let me go right after these folks. Let me go. Got three of the seven black billionaires. So there you are. Go after the biggest and baddest. What's the top tech that you're using to make your business run smoothly? I use it all, man. I use all the technology that is available in social media. Is there one specifically that you feel like is critical to your business? Yeah, well, my wife will probably tell you everything from Cash App to Square. Favorite quote or model that you live by? When you come to my office and right by my light switch, I got a picture of my icon, WB Du Bois. And that's the last image that I always see before I walk into the class because I cut the lights out in my office. And Kevin, underneath his picture, I got the following words, DK. 
before you stand before your students today, never forget a poor teacher complains, a good teacher explains, an excellent teacher demonstrates, but a great teacher inspires. That's the quote, the last words I see before I go to class every Tuesday and Thursday. A great teacher inspires. Go inspire your children. Favorite or most impactful book that you've read? Well, arguably, I'm glad you brought that up. When I was a junior, spring semester, my junior year, my family ran out of money. We were like $500 short, which could have been $500 million back then. My mother got the money, but I didn't have money for books. I was a good student. Here you got University of Oklahoma, more than 25,000 students, only a handful of blacks and this, that, and everything. And something said, go talk to your dean. I went to the dean. And Kevin, this is before affirmative action. This is before equal opportunity. This is before cultural diversity. All of that. We're talking 1970. I said, you can look at my transcript. You can see I'm a good student. You can see I'm on par to graduate. Get out of here next year, my senior year. Parents don't have a dime. I don't have money for books. I need some help. And what he did, white gentleman, 1970, didn't have to do it. He called his uh, secretary into his office. He dictated a letter to his secretary right there. He placed in his budget code and he signed his name to it, folded it, put it in an envelope, placed it in my hand. He said, young man, go to the bookstore and get any book that you want. He used his personal budget code to pay for my books. Wow. Well, so what was so fantastic about that? I'm in the bookstore. I get all my books. And he said, well, get any book you want. Milton Friedman, the economist who taught at the University of Chicago, Nobel Prize winning, just got finished writing his book, the bestseller, Capitalism and Freedom. He said, get any book you want. I got it. I got that book. I read it. Set me on my path for you know wealth creation and this, that, and everything for the rest of my life. Profound book that had an impact on my life. Mm. What tips would you give to someone who's looking to become a millionaire or have a similar career as yours? Top of the list, Lead the Field by Earl Nightingale. you got to go get it. Lead the Field by Earl Nightingale. Yeah, I still have the audio tapes, but I got the DVD mm-hmm. and I'm about to get the book because Nightingale Conan just released the book, what, a couple of years ago. Earl Nightingale wrote me a nice letter when I was on the path doing what I was doing. He wrote me a nice letter on yellow legal sheet of paper written in pencil. Wow. Earl Nightingale. Wow. Yep. Three jewels that you would tell someone looking to create their best life. Number one, dream big dreams because they do come true. Number two, believe in yourself when no one else will. And then last but not least, focus on serving others. Use your life in service of others because money is not the bottom line. Love is the bottom line. You heard me say this before, Kevin. You love your job. You're going to get the parking space closest to the building. You love your coworkers. You're going to make manager in no time. And if you're an entrepreneur and you love your customers, you're going to get more customers. Love is the bottom line. And it'll show So what's next for you, Dr. Kimbrell? Great. I'm uh, tentatively working on a book called Seven. Mm -hmm. It is the seven traits, qualities, and attributes of those individuals that are labeled iconic. And what's the best way for us to keep in contact with you? You can hit me up on Facebook. You can hit me up on Instagram. You can hit me up. Go to my website, DennisKimbrough.com. And the like, I would love to hear from you. My books are available, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. They are all over. I am just blessed. And so now we've reached a point in the interview called The Turnaround. The Turnaround. Here we go. This is bad boy about The Turnaround. Oh, man. I'm going to put your business on Front Street, baby. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like nervous right now. So you already know what it means, but... Create yep. the life family. That means that Dr. Kimbrough, who is an yep. expert interviewer, becomes the interviewer, and I'm the interviewee, and he can yep. ask me any three questions that I have to answer. So yep. I only have one request. Yep. Please be gentle. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready, Doc. If you didn't show up at this particular time and place, what would the world miss? As you, as an individual, if mm. Kevin Brown were not on the planet right now, 
What would the world miss? They would miss an example of a person and the touch and feel of a person who believes and has achieved the things that he's wanted to because he believed and that he was willing to do the work and make the sacrifices for it. So I think that they would miss the inspiration. Okay. You're just like a Cracker Jack box. What is the free prize inside? What is the one prize inside of you that people weren't expecting? When the world buys into you, Kevin, what is the free prize inside? I think it's probably authenticity. You could probably sense it mm-hmm. from the outside, but I yep. think just the sincerity and the and the general love that I have for my fellow men and the willingness to help however I can if someone is on the path to trying to achieve something, then I'm, I'm all in. I genuinely love to see people win. It inspires me because I believe in, I call it friendly competition, where I mm-hmm. want to see you go as high as you can so mm-hmm. that I can have something to aspire to be. Describe you in five words. Number one word, my favorite word would be ambition. Ambitious, humble, excited, loving, and curious. And last question, what keeps you up at night? Creativity and just my desire. I have a desire to become a millionaire. And so working diligently to solve that by serving others. So really figuring out what problem am I solving and how scalable is it? And I lied, Kevin. That wasn't the last question, but this is the last (laughs) question. You can keep asking, Doc. Okay. If you wear a wristband or if you wore a wristband, what would it say? I am the brand I say I am, which means that I'm in control of my destiny. That's a quote that I made up, but I actually used to have wristbands and that's what they would say. And I used to give them out. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of youth speaking. So I had the ones that glowed in the dark and I would take them to all of the kids. And I remember showing up at a presentation in Mississippi a year or two later and this kid had not taken that wristband off. Wow. Yeah. And I spoke in Ohio about four years ago and a young lady hit me up on LinkedIn. She said, will you please accept my LinkedIn request? I still have the quote and live by the quote that you said. I am the brand that I say I am. She said, it's written on my wall at home. Wow. It's written in my binder. And I say it to myself every day. Yeah. And so it was just absolutely humbling. But it's something that I truly live by. And, you know, it's the mantra. And that's really the mindset of Fortune 500 America. I mean, you know, what what is a brand? A brand is a promise. And then after you make the promise, what are the two words? Prove it. Mm. You got to prove your promise. Well, Kevin, I got to get out of here, my brother, because I got so much to do. I got to get my work copied. I got class tomorrow. My phone's been blowing up and ringing. I don't know if you heard it going on. I got it on vibrate and the like. And if we need to continue this, create your life series. My brother, put three dots after this and we will continue. All right. Well, I'm definitely going to reconnect with you. So, Doc, thank you so much for your time, for being Uh on the show, man. Thank you. (laughs) Kevin, I love you, my brother. Keep doing what you're doing. Will do. Have a great one. You too. Bye-bye. This episode was brought to you by PodcastLaundry.com. I love Podcast Laundry. It provides a real solution to free up my time. And time is the only resource that we cannot get back. Podcast Laundry was created with love to help other fellow busy podcasters free up time so that they could do more of what they love, whether that's traveling, time with friends and family, or working on other ventures. If you want to free up your time, then have Podcast Laundry do the dirty work of note-taking, graphic creation, editing, show tagging, and uploading for you. Go to PodcastLaundry.com or call 347-871-8273 to schedule your consultation. And remember to use code CYLS. That's PodcastLaundry.com or call 347-871-8273.